Well, welcome to worship. Good morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. I'm so glad that you're here. Those of you that are here and those of you that came to the first service, perhaps, because we had a little bit of a parking inconvenience this morning. So thank you for parking somewhere in Smith County and making your way here. Uh, I know some of you parked like at Dillard's. So thanks for that. You can go get yourself a nice pair of pleated slacks when you're done. We're glad that you're here because we get to gather at Christmas time during the season of Advent to have, to do, to be church. Now, I love preaching and I love having church, but particularly at Advent, I think there's a, an increased emphasis because when the church gathers, these people who are indwelled by God's Spirit, who are in Christ, who are loved by the Father, who are interrelating with one another, when we come to God's Word, I, I want to remind you, perhaps, perhaps over the year, your awe has leaked, your, your wonder has diminished, but because of Christmas, because Christ is come, not just that he did or he will, but Christ, he is come. Because of that, when we as a church gather and we sing songs and we openly declare and confess and profess things that are true about our God, and when we come together and we reverently submit to God's spirit as he illumines his word, I want to remind you of what's happening and to set your expectations accordingly, that God literally speaks to us in the present tense. And maybe that's not been your experience in church, that maybe you came to church and you heard a thing and you're like, oh, that's maybe helpful, maybe not. What's for lunch? But we get to be the church, and the scriptures are very clear that when God speaks to his covenant community, to the messianic people, God is speaking to us in the present tense, perhaps and probably not audibly, but more profoundly, he is conveying his eternal truth directly to our hearts and souls and minds and therefore our bodies, our expressions, and our relationships. And so because it is the season of Advent that Christ is come, we get to experience and enjoy that together. Now, it is the Advent season and there's a lot of tendency for Christians and for everybody else to get caught up in the pageantry of men, all these images and ideas and the colors and the sights and the sounds and the smells and all the tradition and all the traditions and all of the things. And make no mistake, I love all that stuff. But all of that stuff will have faded by January 2nd. But what we have the opportunity to come together and to cling to, not the pageantry of men, but the promises of God. And so the Advent season gives us the chance to sort of amplify that together. I don't know if you've given much thought this season, probably you have at least tacitly or subconsciously, at what you would like most to receive this Christmas. Maybe there's some new gadget, maybe there's an upgrade, a device, a new vehicle, some sort of whatever it might be. And you think, if I had that, if I could just have that or those, then I'd be complete, I'd be happy, I'd be fulfilled. I would finally have everything that I needed. Let me just say, nah, because Christmas is about a week and a day away. And let's just say that for some reason, somebody decided to get you that thing or those things that you think are going to make you so happy. You will have a momentary jolt of exhilaration and thrill. And then about 90 minutes later, you'll be thinking about next Christmas. What you really need, what I really need, what we really need in this room and what the whole world needs is for the world to be set 
to rights. You just think what's going on as we gather in this odd beige brick building from 1949 on the third floor to worship. But all over the world, there is, there is pain, there is fear, uncertainty, doubt, there is loneliness, there is, there is scarcity, there's all sorts of angst and pain and shame. But golly, what if the whole world could literally be set to rights? That it would be that sort of I don't want to overstate this, but that utopia that we all somehow intrinsically dream of. Here's the message of Christmas. It is. God has done what is required to set the world to rights. Christ is come already and not yet. And so we live in this in-between, this liminal space that God has done the ultimate Christmas fulfillment, this ultimate Advent supply of what we need most is for our detriment, our depravity, our darkness, and our death to be undone. And God has done it in Christ. He redeems us to himself and to one another. So this Advent season, we're going to continue to study the genealogy of Jesus as we've already heard sung because there is some motif that we get to see God's surprising grace. Though our sin is much, his grace is more. Though our sin is much, his grace is more. And we see that as we begin to read the story of the resume of Jesus. And we've done this for several weeks already. We're going to do it again this morning. Here is the beginning of the resume, the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, it's the very first verse in our New Testament. And I just, I'm bursting when I think I get to preach this every Advent season in some way. It's the very first verse. Why? Because the world was dark and, and it was dying and it was depraved and, and all sorts of deceit and debauchery were occurring all throughout the season, the times of the Old Testament. But God had promised to a man named Abraham, I'm going to set the world to rights through you, Abram. The disparity between people groups, the disparity in relationships, the dissonance and the static and the animosity and the aggression, I'm going to resolve it through you, Abraham, and there's going to come one who will be a righteous king who represents the realm, and he's going to be the one who will do it. And for thousands and thousands of years, the people of Israel waited until there is 400 years of silence in which God does not speak. And then Matthew says, you guys, the one who will execute and accomplish the promises made to Abraham has come. He is Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, meaning he is the king. He is the fulfiller of the promises made to Abraham. That's just verse one, verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, the yada yadas, Daryl and his other brother, Daryl. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. We talked about Tamar three weeks ago in Genesis chapter 38. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. We talked about Rahab from Joshua 2, two weeks ago. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. We talked about Ruth last week. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This resume of Jesus, 
not what he's accomplished or even what he's capable of accomplishing, but who he comes from. Not the great grand matriarchs of Israel, not Sarah, wife of Abraham, not Rebecca, wife of Isaac, not Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob, but these Gentile women who are in large part, in large fashion, they are victims. They are the recipients of a treacherous treatment by a Jewish man. And yet, because of what God does in, through, and with them, we are prepared for and pointed to what Christ will do, what God will show us in the coming of Christ. We are prepared for the coming of Messiah, the one who will take away the sins of the world, who will restore right relationship between fallen man and holy God. We are prepared for a conqueror, one who will come from the east, who will sweep in and remove all of the wickedness and violence, and who will replenish and replace with peace, prosperity, and blessing that conqueror. We're prepared for a redeemer, one who will buy us back from our own sin and shame and suffering and death. And we're prepared for a king is what we get to talk about this morning. This king who will be the, the righteous ruler of the entire realm. Next Sunday morning, Christmas Eve morning, we'll gather at 1030, just one service, and we'll look at Mary. As we've already heard, read this morning, that she treasures these things in her heart. That she gets to be the bearer of God-made flesh. All these stories might be somewhat familiar, and it might be a little bit strange to talk about these things at Christmas time. But as a matter of fact, they're the most wonderful preparation and positioning and posturing of how we are to think about God, what he's done about our lives and what we have and how we are to experience, express, and enjoy the lives that God has given us. We've been saying this all season, all series. Our big idea for all of these Advent messages is that sin is no match for God's grace. Sin, though it is much, God's grace, it is more. And the moral of all of these stories about all of these women is that morals don't save a single human soul. Only surprising grace does that. In fact, no amount of immorality disqualifies any of us from receiving and believing the gospel. And so the great gift at Christmas is to be confounded all over again that we have been set free from sin and error and failure of our lives by grace and by a loving and merciful God. And so, at long last, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's right about in the middle of your Old Testament. We'll also put it on screen, not because we're trying to train you not to read your Bibles. No, we just know that some of you won't have a quick access or you just simply can't find 2 Samuel. No problem. Let me sort of reorient you where we have come thus far. Half of human history takes place from Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 12, God tells Abram, I'm going to do a new thing out of a no thing. And then his great-grandson, Judah, we find the story of Judah in Genesis chapter 38. Before they even go to Egypt, that is the time of the patriarchs, and Judah interacts with a woman named Tamar. She's a Canaanite. That is in Genesis 38. Then they go down to Egypt. They spend four centuries. They come up out of Egypt. At long last, we come out of Egypt, and we are introduced to Rahab as Joshua begins the conquest into the land of Canaan. That's in Joshua chapter 2. Then a period goes by into the time of the judges. When the conquest has begun, they never quite completed it, but during the time of judges, we're introduced to a woman named Ruth. 
This morning, we're going to be introduced to a woman named Bathsheba. Now it's the time of the monarchy. The kings of Israel have been installed and implemented. A lot of history has passed. So far, we've got two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. These are the mothers, in a sense, of Jesus. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll walk through this pretty efficiently this morning, and then we'll see how we can apply it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Oh, yeah. You can hear the brave harp music in the background, right? It's the time when kings go out and they slay. All right. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Bum, bum, bum. That's not how it's supposed to go. David was crowned king in Hebron, and he stays in Hebron for seven years, and then he moves his capital to Jerusalem, and now things are going great. There is prosperity, there is peace, there is bounty, there is blessing, there is no scarcity, the economy is flourishing, education is on the rise, things are going great, but it's springtime. And it's time to complete the task where the righteous ruler of Israel will extend and expand the borders of the covenant community of righteousness. Why spring? Well, because it's a weather-related thing. The harvests are done and you need more resources and there's still these harassing, raiding tribes of the Ammonites. And so it's time to go and deal with them to fulfill the conquest that God commanded. Now, their mortal enemies, the Philistines, David has just about completely finished them off and broken their backs. The hated Philistines are almost gone. They've been driven way, way out of the picture. The Moabites have been pushed way back east. Just these Ammonites this last little marauding band who got their start just like the nation of Moab did from the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And they were a hated people. They harassed the fringes of Israel and they were always a nuisance. Now was the time for David to ride out and destroy the Ammonites to get them out of Yahweh's land once and for all. But David stays back. And you may be thinking, well, hold on a second. He's the king. Should the head of state ride into battle? Don't be thinking about ours. Not a good idea. I don't want to hear your emails. No, no. In those days, the king led the people into battle. Why? Because he was the righteous one. He was the implementer of righteousness in the realm. And if the king should die, that was God's business. It's not the king's project to keep himself alive. He was to righteously rule on behalf of God for the people. But David stays behind. He sends his general, and he stays in Jerusalem. We, the readers, are supposed to see this and go, "Uh uh-oh, this is about to be a huge mess. Sure enough, verse 2, it just so happened. This is no coincidence. This was calculated. This was planned. It just happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, (laughs) you get this? It's late afternoon, early evening, and my man just now wakes up. Like, you're the king. You've got things to do. You should be out righteously ruling. Nah, he throws the bag of Funyuns off. He turns off the video game. He yawns. Mom, I'm hungry. This is the king of Israel just now getting off of his couch. What we're being told is he is idle. Because everything is prosperous, everything is plenty, and he has nothing to do. 
Danger, danger, danger. Prepare for the nuclear warhead that is about to go off in your soul. Now, the reality is most of us pine for, we pray for times of prosperity, times of plenty. And what we're essentially saying often is, God, bless me so much that I don't have to trifle with you anymore. And God loves you so much that he will never allow that to happen. He knows that when we are idle, when we have nothing else to strive for, to, to, to vie for, that we will do what David will do. Watch what it says here in verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. Bad translations. Not just that he was walking. He's aimlessly meandering, looking for something to do. He's bored, and that's bad. He's not just going from point A to point B. Oh, he's on his roof. It's late in the afternoon, and he's looking around for something to occupy his mind and his time. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. It just so happened. By the way, this expression, very beautiful, is very rare. It's only said of a few women in the whole of the Bible. It is said of Rebekah, wife of Isaac. It is said of Queen Vashti of Persia. It is said of Esther, and it is said of Bathsheba. That's all we know. And she just so happens to be on her roof, roof bathing. You might be thinking, there he is up on top of the roof like our building here, and he looks across Broadway, and he sees way over there, and he sees, no, no, David lives right here. You can go there today and stand right there in David's palace in the old city in the south of old Jerusalem, and Bathsheba's house is right there. It's right there. It's not like he didn't know. He, he's right there. And there she is, and she happens to be bathing, and Oh, she was very beautiful. She wasn't just fine. She was fine. You put that many eyes in fine, you're in trouble, okay? Martin Luther said, you can't stop the bird from flying over your head, but don't let it build a nest in your beard. Good counsel. David starts putting twigs in there, okay? This is what happens. Verse three, and David sent. Now, I think Samuel is the one that writes this, and it's very curt, it's very abrupt, it's very like, uh, uh, just very staccato, rapid fire burst, no commentary, no explanation, just this is what happened, and it's shameful, and it's gross, and so I think Samuel says it just like this, and David sent, and he inquired about the woman, and one of his servants, his messenger said, um, dude, not really in the text, is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Notice that it's a question. Now, there's so much here. I want to remind you that David had been crowned king in Hebron. He's there seven years, and he moves his capital to Jerusalem, and he builds for himself a palace. And who's going to get to live right next door to the king? Gosh, I don't know my neighbors. <laughs> no, he's the king. He, of course, knows exactly who's there. When your house is right... Here, the king knows who you are. And the servant says, why are you asking? You know who that is. She's the wife of Uriah. She's the daughter of Eliam. Now, let me pause. I know it's Christmas, and we should be talking about merry things. Well, this isn't that. 
This is perhaps one of the first instances in our Bibles of what I will very blatantly call pornography, where a human uses the image and the idea of another image bearer created in God's image for his own jolt of gratification. He knows that she's there. You know what the messenger says? Uh, dude, is this not Bathsheba? You know who she is. And she's the daughter of Eliam. And it's always somebody's daughter. It's always somebody's sister. It's always somebody's child, parent, whatever. They're humans. And so the servant is doing his best to humanize her. It's the daughter of Eliam. Now that may not mean a whole lot, but this gets me. It's the daughter of someone that loved David. There's a guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was this foreign mercenary. He was a Hittite. And Ahithophel was one of the senior counselors for David. All the time he's running around, fleeing from King Saul, fighting the Philistines. Ahithophel was the man. And he has a son named Eliam. First Chronicles 3 calls him Amiel. He's a Hittite foreign mercenary. Amiel was a bad dude. And he has a daughter named Bathsheba. Bathsheba means either the daughter of the oath or it can mean the seventh daughter. Probably both. Like I'm running names, I'm just gonna call you seven because one through six are taken. Probably means daughter of the oath. Also probably means daughter number seven. Ahithophel was one of David's most senior trusted counselors. He has a son named Eliab who's also a Hittite foreign mercenary. We'll find out in Chronicles. And he has a daughter and he gives his daughter to this guy named Uriah. Uriah is called a Hittite. Now, the Hittite Empire ended in 1200 BC. So 300 years before David, that massive empire in what is today Turkey is gone. But there were some of those Hittite warriors that came down into Israel area and they hired themselves out as mercenaries. And apparently they became worshipers of Yahweh. And this dude named Uriah changes his name to Uriah, which means Yahweh is my light. Now, Uriah... He's about three parts Rambo, two parts Chuck Norris, and five parts 007. This dude was a bad man. You read his exploits all through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and he's like the special forces. He's Delta Force. He's a ranger. He would run all these secret missions for David. He would go across enemy lines of the Philistines just to get a drink of water and bring it back to David. He was an assassin. He was a bad dude, and David loved him, and he loved David. And Uriah's off to war. David knows it, but he's in a time of prosperity and plenty, and so he's got too much time on his hands. David sent messengers, verse 4, and it's pretty gross. It's so base and brief. He took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then the text gives us a little parenthesis. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. What's the point? What's about to happen cannot be pinned on Uriah. He wasn't there, and she's just been purified. And so what's about to happen can only be pinned to David. This is what Samuel is saying. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent, and she told David. In English, three words. In Hebrew, it's only two. I'm pregnant. And that is the only words this woman speaks in our Bible. I'm pregnant. Now, there's been a lot of people that have said, wait a second, wait a second. This was entrapment. She knew who her neighbor was. She knew that the king was her neighbor. She knew that the king was not at war as he should have been. She shouldn't have been up there bathing as she was. And she shouldn't have been demonstrating a purification ritual as she was. Perhaps, maybe. Here's the point. 
That's conjecture. The text never, ever, ever hints to that. We're not told. What the text tells us over and over again is that David is at fault. This is all on him. She responds back to him simply, two words, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Ah, do you see the the progression? I saw, I took. Now I'll cover, now I'll fix. Like most of us, particularly in the male varietal of our species, we tend to think, I can fix this. I can undo this. No, no, no. The human problem requires a divine solution. So he's gonna try to come up with this elaborate plan to cover his tracks. And it just gets from bad to worse. David sent word to Joab, his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said, did you notice what happened? He never even gives him a chance to answer. Hey, how's your mom and them? How's this? How's the job? How's the van? Hey, listen, I got you. Doesn't even want to hear the answer because David's only thinking about David. This is the righteous king of Israel. Verse eight, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now that's strange advice. I mean, it's good advice, fellas. Don't get me wrong. I'm always gonna advocate you washing your feet, okay? What's going on here? The soldiers of Israel were under a covenant with their king that while they are at war, they will not go have any R&R, let's say. No rest, no relaxation. They are on task. And so the, the, the ceremony of washing your feet meant that the king was releasing you from your oath and that you could go to your house and you could recuperate, rejuvenate, rest, and recreate, okay? Go wash your feet, bro. Like, it's okay, I'm giving you a, I'm giving you a, a pass here. Watch what happens. Go wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David was like, here, and take these fig newtons or whatever it was. I don't know. Take these to your, this is gonna be fine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, go! That's not really in there, but what? My plan's not working? No, it isn't. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? In other words, that's what I would have done. When I'm hot and tired and cranky and fussy, I want a snack and I want to go home. Not Uriah. Uriah said to David, this is amazing. The ark, meaning the presence of God, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. There's a Gentile whose name means Yahweh is my light behaving like a righteous king of Israel. There is a king of Israel behaving like a pagan Hittite. It's astonishing and so surprising. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that David made Uriah drunk. Way to go, Dave. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even inebriated, he's evidencing and expressing more righteousness than the king. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, 
this is perhaps the most cruel thing in the entire chapter, and sent it by the hand of Uriah, signs a warrant for his execution, and has him deliver it himself to his general. It's absolutely brutal. In the letter he wrote, just so that we don't think that maybe there was a misunderstanding, no, verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set your right in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down, and that'll teach him a lesson, no, and die. Premeditated, cold-blooded murder. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned your right to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was rescued when David contrite rode out of Jerusalem, and he strolled in, and he... No, Uriah died. The righteous king wasn't, and he didn't come. And not only did Uriah die, but did you see what else happened? Several other innocents also died. So we like to tell ourselves that sin is a victimless crime. I can do whatever I want. No, sin always splatters. Sin always gets on somebody else. There is no victimless sin. David had been listening to the whispers in his mind that said, hey, you're David. You deserve this. You are worthy of this. You're not getting enough. You have everything. You need a little bit more. And so he sins, he grasps, and he takes, and several people suffer. Some even die. It's absolutely tragic. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's, it's really when, when the king's anger rises. Why does he say that? Well, Joab knows his king. Joab knows his buddy David that he used to go to war with. There was a time when they were told that King Saul had been killed in battle with the Philistines. And so what does David do? He killed the messenger. David does not like getting bad news. And so Joab says, look, buddy, I'm sorry, you, you, you're the one that's going to have to go and tell David that the fighting got pretty intense and that his next door neighbor and probably very best friend in the world is dead. When the king gets mad about this, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Joab knows that he's, he's going to... He's going to ask you about this. And this is what's really amazing. Verse 21, Joab knows David so well, and Joab has probably heard David say this very thing before. He's going to quote, knowing that David's going to quote from the book of Judges. He's going to refer to a story of Gideon. When Gideon's son, Abimelech, which means my father is king, when Abimelech goes to fight and he's killed. And so Joab knows David well enough that that David is going to reference this story. Joab says, when David says to you, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, that's another name for Gideon, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then, messenger boy, you shall say, um, um, by the way, um, Uriah's dead too. Joab knows how this is going to go. He's going to get mad, and you let him know, hey, Uriah's dead. Mission accomplished. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. And you can see David like, you did what? Some of the king's servants are dead. And also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also because he knows what's about to come. He's very flinching for impact from David, but Uriah is dead. Oh, 
I've done it. I've gotten away with it. Nobody is the wiser. Nobody knows anything. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. The ball bounces how it bounces. Let bygones be bygones, Joab. By the way, Joab had traveled for years and years with Uriah, would have known this guy well, but he honors and follows his king. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage Joab. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Can you imagine? She already knows that she's pregnant. She had no choice. When the king sends, she has to comply. She already knows that she's pregnant. Everybody knows that her husband hasn't been near her. She is now completely defamed, damaged goods. And so she is alone. But the morning was over. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the chilling end of chapter 11, the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh, and that's never good. Now, maybe you're familiar with the story. You might know that in chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he tells him a story. Once upon a time, there was a poor man, and the poor man has a a little lamb, and he loved the lamb, and he took care of the lamb like it was his own child, and he caressed this little lamb and just nurtured it and cared for it and fed it and like fed it out of his hand, and he loved this little lamb. That's all that he had, but then a rich man came, and the rich man had many, many, many sheep, but he was about to be visited by another wealthy stranger, and so the rich man came and took the poor man's lamb, and he killed it, and he served it up to his visitor so that the poor man had nothing. And David becomes enraged at the story. And he says, that man must pay. He must repay fourfold and he must die. And Nathan says, oh, you the man. No, he doesn't say it that way. He says, you are that man. And David repents. He covers himself in sackcloth and ash and he calls out to Yahweh and he prays, and he writes poetry. He writes Psalm 51, and he writes Psalm 32, openly confessing his error and how he had drifted away from the path of Yahweh. Yet, it's a powerful story. Sin was much, but grace was more. Sin is no match for God's grace. So what do we take away from this? To prepare our hearts for the coming Christmas season and for the rest of the year. Three quick points. Number one goes like this. Sin is not a surprise. Sin is not a surprise. The story of Bathsheba and her inclusion into the genealogy of Jesus is a tragic one that had consequences for generations. But the shame of it is not against her, it's against David. And he didn't get there overnight. It was a long time in the making. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, I mentioned already that David was crowned king in Hebron. And the very first thing that he does when he's crowned king in heaven, 2 Samuel 5, 13, is he takes for himself many wives and concubines. No, the reader's supposed to go, are you kidding me? That's the one thing God said do not do. Why? Because people would marry for security and financial gain and protection and alliances because they didn't trust in God. God said, you don't ever have to do that. I am in your security. I am your strength. I am your protection and your provision. David is crowned king and he goes, you'll do, you'll do, you too. And we're supposed to be horrified that that's how he begins his kingship. But not only that, earlier than that, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 
Samuel tells the people of Israel, you're not going to want a king. I know you think that you do because all the nations do, but this king is going to take your sons and your daughters. This king is going to take for himself many wives and concubines, and his heart will be led astray. And sure enough, but even earlier than that, Deuteronomy 17, God tells Israel that her king must not take many wives and concubines, lest his heart be led astray. David had been walking on this path of darkness for a long time. You might say dropping flagstones and paving stones so that what happens on the roof didn't happen overnight. It was a long time coming. It was, in a sense, destined to happen because of the corruption of the world and the fallenness of the human heart. The deck is simply stacked against a human soul. We are by nature, Peter says in the book of Acts, we are by nature God-haters, and we are prone to rebel in all sorts of ways. It is our default behavior, and apart from God's grace, it is the very best we can do. And the seasons of plenty and prosperity are often the most conducive to our wandering away from the path that God intends for us. Which leads me to point number two. The best of men are men at best. You ever think about that? This is David, the king, the man after God's own heart. And yet, he was fatally flawed. This is the one who was supposed to rule in righteousness, and yet he was condemned by his own sin nature. And we're no different. We are certainly no better left to our own devices. Apart from God's grace, the very best we could hope for would be a mild morality that is really only coming out of fear and pride. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which we'll be looking at in the middle of January, be careful when you think that you are above sinning, you're about to go down. When everything's going your way, you are under assault and you don't even know it yet. There is no sin of which you and I are not capable. It is our tendency. Not only was David not holy in his conduct, he wasn't even as moral or noble as a Hittite guy named Uriah. And yet, into this context comes Jesus the Christ. God comes to earth in Christ and he becomes a man to redeem and undo the curse of our condemnation. For as the curse is found, for as the curse is found, all of the things that Adam messed up, all the ways that Abram failed, all the ways that David went wrong, it leaves you wanting something more. Can't there be someone to rescue us from all of this unrighteousness? And the gospels tell us, yes. All of your heart's desire, all of your mind's most high envisionings, God has done in Christ. That stain of sin is a part of God's family heritage in Christ. The extent of his reach and the depths of his grace are astonishing. And that's because point number three goes like this. God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. Perhaps you listen to voices in your head, sometimes out loud, sometimes just in your subconscious, calling you damaged goods, dirty, broken, used up misdirected, or maybe my favorite, wasted years and energy, you think, what have I done with my life? Maybe that should be on all of our business cards. And yet, God's grace is so surprising. Receive this at Christmas. The glory and the good news of Christmas is that despite all the reasons for him to be ashamed, God is neither ashamed nor disappointed with me and you. There is no such thing as having gone too far ever from God's grace. Of course, there are consequences, sin splatters. 
The baby born to David and Bathsheba dies. And it's horrible. But no matter who we've become or what we've done, God is not threatened. Not only that, he does not blush at that from which we have been redeemed. Our sin and wreckage is a part of his story of redemption and ours. Who else would include the characters that he does in his resume? Only the one who is in no way threatened or ashamed of it. God is not trying to convince the angelic realm that we're a sweet moral family that has its act together. Hardly. We're the most awkward family ever, and God is crazy about us. So when we come to church to do and be church, it is that awkward, awesome family photo of all of these misfit toys that God is absolutely crazy about. As proud as God the Father is of his son Jesus, he is the same feelings about us. Really, this is what it means to be in the family of God, loved and cherished and adored in the midst of our dysfunction, not merely tolerated or accommodated. God loves you. See, sin is no match for God's grace. All of these stories that we've been studying through the whole Advent season are pointing us to Christ as Messiah, as conqueror, as redeemer, as king. Next week, we'll look at Christ as the Son This is Matthew's whole point in the genealogy. Now, all this series, we've been walking through verses one through six. I think it's time now to finally frost the cake. I'm not gonna read all of this, but the genealogy of Jesus continues in chapter one. In chapter two, he'll give us the Christmas story. But in chapter one, he's establishing the lineage, the heritage, and the resume of Jesus. So I wanna continue on, but this time I wanna pick up in verse 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, because Matthew continues to walk down all these different names all the way through to the coming of Christ. And so in Matthew 1, verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Abraham to David, 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Is Matthew just got some extra parchment and some time on his hands and just wants to do some math games? No, clearly not. He's telling us something marvelous. All through the Old Testament, God is revealing his plan of redemption in groups of sevens. So what Matthew is saying very intentionally, very directly, hey, look, three groups of 14, that's six groups of seven. There have been seven generations of wreckage and 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 seven generations of wreckage. And then Christ is that seventh generation. Christ is come. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abram. He is the one that our hearts hope for. And Matthew is trying to shout off the page, you guys, Merry Christmas. He has come and he is the universal king of the cosmos and he is setting the world to rights and that should change everything. But how we are married about how we parent, about how we are neighbors and friends and coworkers and community members. He's done it. We get to live like that's true. We get to look at our world like that's true. We get to love in our world like that's true. This is the message of Advent. I hope you get the new 15. It's made out of titanium. Good for you. God in Christ is setting the world to rights. 
Receive that, believe that in December, in January and August until next December when we gather together as the church to celebrate our king that cares, our captain willing to die, our brother who is proud. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has stumbled into an awkward beige brick building on the third floor a week before Christmas, if they don't know you, would you lead them irresistibly into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that they would believe that the Christ has come, that he is who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. He offers to take away the sin, not only of the world, but of that particular person. May they be persuaded And may their world be transformed by the coming of our Christ as we eagerly await his return. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that though our sin is much, your grace is more. And may we be revitalized in a sense to live in light of Advent and have joy because we are fulfilled. We lack for nothing. And when we begin to feel like we have enough with our material possessions or experiences, Would you guard our hearts and minds with the truths of Scripture? Father, thank you for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.